Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 108. Now this is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu and with me is the homie Musa Kalenga. How's it man? Hey, how are you doing Andy Le? Glad to be back. Always, I'm doing really good man. Uh, busy week or so. If you've been following us on Twitter, you'll know that... Um, We've signed up with Jam Lab for the next six months. Now, Jam Lab is uh, basically a journalism and media accelerator that's being run by Fitz Journalism and the Joburg Center for Software Engineering, as well as Ryerson University uh, in Toronto and Journalists for Human Rights. So, yeah, the next six months, uh, we double down on trying to to work out what we're about, man. I think that's a that's a good thing, man. We've been chatting a bit offline about uh, some of the conversations that you're having, and uh, based on what we've been speaking out about in the last couple of weeks, looks like you're headed in the right direction, man. So I wish you all the best. It's going to be a, hopefully a watershed moment for uh, for African Tech Roundup, but as usual, making it bigger and better and uh, serving the needs of the community. So it sounds very exciting so far. So I, I wish you good luck, man. Thank you, man. We're excited. I'll let you all in uh, on on what exactly what we're doing in a little bit. But on this show this week. We'll be discussing a landmark ruling made by South Africa's Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, otherwise known as the CCMA. Uh, That ruling effectively means Uber will have to start treating their drivers in South Africa more like employees. That's coming up. We'll also talk about a Zimbabwean entrepreneur who so far succeeded in crowdsourcing over £300,000 for an ambitious self-driving car project. And then, of course, we'll also give you the low low on a $275 million investment that's been made by a UK-based private equity firm to create what's been dubbed Africa's largest university network. Now, that's all next, but first, in our sponsored segment this week, we thought we'd share some important news about ourselves regarding Jam Lab and where we're taking the africantechroundup.com platform. Now, that encompasses all the content we create to enrich our growing global audience, uh, basically all you people who are keen to stay up to speed with important developments regarding Africa's tech industry. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are participating in the Jam Lab program. It's the first accelerator program we've signed up for since we started publishing about two years ago. Uh, and up until now, we've prioritized being consistent and just pretty much getting it done and prioritize that over building a solid case for, say, commercial viability or indeed investability, which is something we're thinking about these days. Uh, We've decided to adopt a disciplined sort of startup mindset uh, to our work here at the African Tech Roundup. We want to validate a number of assumptions that we've been making to justify our existence uh, and, and sort of cement some of the values that we've come to espouse. So to that end, there are three things we're trying to do and uh, we will be reaching out to you as our community to help us basically work our way to serving you better. Firstly, we want to make sure we understand what your needs are as an audience, as as a community, and we want to start developing content strictly in line with what you need and what you basically uh, come here for on a weekly basis. The other thing we want to do is start to experiment with interactive social media tools that might help us improve engagement, help foster the sort of uh, connections that need to happen within our community. And then we also want to start researching and trying out paid content models uh, to see if there might be any commercial potential to 
to to our platform uh, and uh, basically work our way to a sustainable model uh, through monetization. So those are the kind of things you should expect to hear a little more about in terms of us reaching out to you to give us yours, to give us a sense of what you think we can do better for you. And also because we're sort of trading new ground in this new media space as far as a lot of the work we do here um, it's an exciting time to be uh, broadcasting as Africans on the internet and so yeah we look forward to having you guys uh, you know back us all the way we hope um, so I'm really very encouraged by the kind of things that uh, that seem to be coming up and that are top of mind for you as a business. Um, just as a side uh, a side note, I think I'd encourage um, the community to help and to get behind you in terms of some of the content because obviously this is going to be a very um, consumer-focused approach to trying to build a business for the future. So participation and input and that kind of thing from a really active community, an already active community, um, will go a long way. So I think uh, big ups and uh, please show your support and ensure that after the six uh, six months, yeah, um, we've got a fantastic African product developed right before your very ears, <laughs> so to speak. So, uh, yeah, good luck and get involved, guys. I couldn't have put it better. Thank you so much, Musa. And uh, with all that said, uh, that has to be one of the longest sponsored segments ever. <laughs> but since it's our show, we'll do what we like. <laughs> exactly. It's your party. Do what you want to do. <laughs> no, but for sure, we just thought we'd get that off our chest. Uh, also, just to give you a, a heads up, because... Because as we sort of tackle this task, it's going to impact our schedule. We'll still come at you every week with useful content. Uh, it might not just be in the sort of strictly regimented, you know, schedule that we, you've become accustomed to. So if anything out of the ordinary happens or doesn't happen, you understand why. And uh, don't you worry, we're still here and we're definitely hustling to make this the best possible product for you. Now, with all that said, we thought it might be nice to just before we jump into this week's news to read you a portion of an email sent to us by a listener of our show in Kenya. His name is Jordan. Inan, shout out to you, bruh. Um, he answered our call to let us know what Kenyans are making of the new 3.6 billion railway line that runs between Nairobi and Mombasa. Now, here's what Jordan says. And for the record, we do prefer voice notes because we love to hear your own voice and get, you know, have you guys share yourselves on our platform. So, Jordan, next time you send us something, bruh, send us a voice note. Yeah. And we want to counteract fake news. So I want to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, we want to make sure it's actually Jordan, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing. Um, but here, here, here goes. Uh, it's the email reads about the Madaraka Express. So far, about seventy-five thousand people have enjoyed the service. Uh, I'm sure it's it's more than that at this point because. Uh, he wrote this uh, at least a couple of weeks ago. A passenger has to book up to three weeks in advance because of the high demand brought about by the political marketing of the service. Now, I'm not sure what you mean by political marketing. You see, this is why we want your voice, man. What's political marketing? Um, anyway, he also says, this reminds me of the graph that Mark Kaigua referenced in a very entertaining recent episode that suggests that new tech has received quite well in its initial days. Then the graph slowly dec declines to steady after people have gotten used to it. It is certainly a convenience uh, given that travelers would otherwise have to endure an 8 to 12-hour journey by bus or pay up to triple times the rate to fly but uh, the cost at which we get this convenience is obviously over the roof 
Ethiopia have done a similar job at a much cheaper cost. I'm not sure if it's comparable because I think Ethiopia's line is a light rail. But any, in any case, we're happy, he says, in a sense that we have new shoes, but sad that the shoes are technically not ours and we have to trade long distances in them to pay them off. After which, the shoes will probably be worn out and we'll go back to needing new shoes and the cycle continues. Ah, Jordan, Jordan, Inan, thank you so much for your comments. Very, very well articulated email, but I like the analogy with the new shoes. That's pretty cool. But thanks for the response. It's always nice when people get back to us. Awesome. We love it. We love it. Now we invite more emails and voice notes, especially like if you have any audio, you can send us with your actual voice telling us what you feel, what's on your heart. Email that to hello at africantechroundup.com and keep those tweets and posts coming. We love them at African Roundup on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. With all that said, now it's on to this week's news. We start with uh, a recent blog by Mbugua Njihia, uh, writing for iAfrican.com. Now, he asserts that Kenya is facing what I guess could be termed a fake news blitz, not unlike the one we've, we saw happen in America during uh, their recent election. Uh, and by the way, congrats to iAfrican.com. They, they seem to be having a lot of their content syndicated by the next web. Uh, we see you, fam. But yeah, back to the story. Apparently, uh, Kenya is suffering a fake news blitz. Who isn't is the question right now. Um, I think a lot of people are struggling with uh, exactly that. But I think as as platforms and consumers mature, um, there should be a better kind of way to censor fake news than I would have assumed in Kenya because they're super active online and in uh, in, in, in uh, social media platforms um, that they wouldn't necessarily be suffering it, but there would be an overwhelming kind of flood of fake news. But my assumption around the kind of maturity of uh, Kenyan consumers that they'd be able to filter that out if that makes sense. Um, so I think maybe there's kind of there's an influx but whether suffering is the right word to use as far as them taking it into consideration i think that might be a bit dramatic yeah look i mean Bogua, i think is alluding to uh, the notion of what i've heard hillary clinton talk about as being weaponized information i think this idea that information is now being deployed for nefarious purposes uh, sometimes not nefarious purposes per se perhaps it's deployed by people who who want to advance an agenda in the case of hillary clinton talking about an agenda she'd probably talk about people who didn't want to see her in office or perhaps did, you know, who knows. Um, in this context, uh, I think Bugua talks about basically news or information that's being packaged with the deliberate intent to deceive or mislead or impact negatively on the decisions that people will make leading up to the polls. Again, Mbugua, I would love for you to reach out to us and give us a, a fuller sense of what you have in mind. Your your article didn't quite go as in-depth as I would hoped for me to get a, a much better idea of what you meant. But I, I do take your point too, Musa, that um, this is happening everywhere. Um, on some level, it's hard not to appreciate what the internet has done in terms of uh, democratizing the agenda-setting mandate that you used to sit only in certain places, high up maybe, you know, the sort of broadcast media chain. And now a lot of people, including us, to be honest, are assuming that mandate uh, because, one, we realize that if it's left to other people, they're going to push their agenda. I think that's such a great description, weaponized information. I think at face value, I, I completely subscribe to it. I, I The question I would like to ask to Mbugua is, uh, is, is to, to what end? So I think most information is weaponized to an extent, right? So um, I don't think anybody is publishing anything without some sort of agenda. Um, but in the case of uh, the kind of 
deliberate attempt to try and either undermine or damage or or mislead, um, there are lots of other conversations that we need to have, right? Uh, some of them are around regulation, some of them are around censorship, some of them are around uh, consumer knowledge and advocacy around what is what is uh, good information sources and what isn't. Um, however, it would be great to get a little bit more texture around kind of the the, the so what of, of of the blog, as you said, in terms of a little bit more detail regarding the weaponized information content. Uh, to what end does it serve? And how is it that that is uh, becoming a challenge? Because in my view, fake news is everywhere. Um, and fake news as a concept I don't think is going to go anywhere. In fact, fake news has been around since the beginning of time, right? I think now we've got technology and we've got the ability to broadcast on mass and probably quicker. Um, but yeah, more information would be great. Incidentally, this is part of what we are exploring as part of, of the Jam Lab Accelerator, uh, this notion of creating the media that hasn't existed really until the last maybe 20 years or so as uh, you know the democratization potential of the internet has been has sort of been realized or increasingly realized across the world and so yeah it'd be, it's quite interesting uh, for you to know perhaps Kenya give us a shout uh, what are, what are you sensing what are you perceiving as you navigate uh, the blogosphere, social media, the web in general out there in East Africa? What are you sensing in terms of the messaging you're getting leading up to the elections? Are you sensing um, nefarious uh, intent in terms of some of the information you're receiving? What are some of the new sources you trust? And how do you come to that conclusion within the context of fake news and everything that impacts or potentially impacts your population leading to an election? We want to hear from you. Give us a shout via email using hello at africantechroundup.com or drop us a link on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash africantechroundup or via Twitter at africanroundup. To the UK next, where a Zimbabwean startup founder named Pasi William Sachiti, which of course is not his real name. That's the name he goes by in the UK. Pasi Hapuri Chidziva. That's the legal name of William Sashiti III, twice removed. Oh, <laughs> William Sashiti. Oh, uh. <laughs> no, we're not poking fun. We just, we're just saying we try to read your name. We can't really make it out. But yeah, William Sashiti, whose legal name in the UK is Pasihapuri Chidziva. I think that's how you say it. I mean, both of us should do a little bit, being, especially me being from Zimbabwe. And I mean, Zambian names are, are, you know, I think the vowels and the pronunciation is similar. So we both should have done better than we did. Yeah, we did. But I think we, this is also a difficult one. It's not easy. Pasapuri. I think that's a tough one. If anyone can pronounce that, please send us a voice note so we can self-correct and apologize in the process. Absolutely. And the reason we're going to so much trouble really is because this is a, a pretty admirable young man. Um, who's doing quite amazing work within the, the space of robotics and artificial intelligence. Uh, he's got this uh, company called the Academy of Robotics, and they've got a car, uh, a self-driving delivery car project on the go called Cargo, spelled K-A-R-Go. Very clever, right? Cargo. Um, and um, less than a month ago, Pasi William and his uh, team basically started a campaign to raise £300,000 uh, for their project. It, in less than a month, they've already exceeded that amount. It's currently sitting at 304 thousand five hundred and sixty pounds ten pounds of which is money i put in so three hundred and four thousand five hundred and sixty pounds that's what it is the important part we must underline is that ten pounds of which is is money i personally invested in this in this venture 
all of 0.00055% uh, ownership in this venture. Look at you. And there's 263 other investors that have obviously put their money on the line and they've obviously contributed to um, that £304,000. Uh, the idea itself is uh, is pretty impressive. I've been looking at it. Uh, you know, the pod-shaped driverless vehicles to autonomously deliver multiple packages to residential areas. So more so um, to try and probably fuel the, the commerce uh, in terms of delivery and, and last mile delivery most likely. Um, and I think he's using artificial intelligence as a, as a key way to navigate the vehicle as well as manage the as well as manage their delivery. Sorry. Um, so I think this is really exciting and I think big up. Um, they've got a prototype that they're busy finalizing um, and preparing for their launch event. Um, and I think they're obviously in early stage discussions with several other people that are interested in uh, in their business, which I think is awesome. Yeah, they are in partnership with the UK car manufacturer Pilgrim. They're a custom car manufacturer. Um, they're also part of NVIDIA's Inception AI Accelerator program, which not just anybody gets into. Pretty impressive. Uh, you know, they they basically have access to the sort of AI resources for driverless cars that the likes of, you know, Tesla, Mercedes, and Audi all have access to. So they're really onto the very best as far as that's concerned. Um they're finalizing, as you said, a full-size prototype of the vehicle. The great thing, though, is that the Department of Trade and Industry in the UK is fully supportive of driverless car initiatives, fully automated car uh, uh, initiatives, and is is ready to license or provide them the opportunity to actually road test this thing in a real working environment. So that should be really exciting. I suppose that's also one of the major reasons why they've decided to do it in the UK as opposed to certain other countries that might not be as willing for them to test it. This is awesome. So let's have a moment about uh, Mr. Passy himself. He's a serial entrepreneur. Um, he exited a company called My City Venue escapes.com which reached over 1.2 million users in two years he also studied ai and robotics at aberritsworth university is that how you say it something like that what i do know is that it's pretty much the same university that developed the mars rover vision system so that's what they're famous for um and i think it's the reason why he decided to study there as opposed to to elsewhere Fantastic. So I think big up and a moment of just kind of congratulations and encouragement for him. Um, his business is clearly playing in a space that is hotting up for a lot of different car manufacturers. And the fact that he's been able to raise that money in such a short period of time um, is nothing but a amazing feat. So congratulations. And uh, we've got a shareholder on the show. So I'm sure we'll be watching you very closely. <laughs> yes, I will definitely be um, protecting my interests, all 0.0055% of it. And, and yeah, because I mean, that 300 pounds represents 15.58% of equity. So 263 people um, sharing in that. Um, that gives them a pre-money valuation of something like 1.65 uh, million pounds, which is which is fair. I would have thought that uh, a venture of this nature would have needed far more money than that. But um, uh, we are talking pounds, I guess. So um, I guess it's a fair amount to, to get them at least to the next level. We'd call the seed round probably uh, to get them through to, you know, proof of concept probably and and then we see from there i am quite ready for my for my share to be diluted to almost nothing but i i thought 10 bucks would be a great way to just show my support for what really is a stand-up project yeah congratulations mate and all the best um i think it'll be great if uh, anybody can 
contact us and tell us how to pronounce his name. But aside from that, and, and where he went to university, yeah, that'll be good as well. But uh, aside from that, as I said, this is a really, really encouraging feat and endeavor. So I'm also going to be watching it very closely. Maybe I'll just drop a few rands in there as well, just while I'm at it. Yeah, and of course, I think it's still open for at least. No, by the time you listen to this, it, the, I think it will be closed um, at time of recording. There's only 12 hours left before the round closed. Um, yeah, otherwise I'd have sent you to crowdcube.com to see if you can uh, get in on the action. And uh, yeah. Moving on, though, to more diabolical news. SAP Africa is now the latest in a string of big multinational firms to be implicated in South Africa's state capture debacle that involves the Gupta family. Now, if you're not familiar with the debacle or who the Gupta family is um, and just how, you know, uh, uh, I suppose headline grabbing their affairs have been in South Africa over the last sort of 18 months or so, just Google, just say South Africa Gupta. And you'll probably, you know, get up to speed really quickly. We don't want to go into the nitty-gritties of what's at stake here. Um, but um, SAP Africa is in good company here. There's ABB, uh, the Swedish-Swiss uh, multinational corporation. Uh, there's the South African uh, business and technology services giant EOH. The state-owned high-tech defense firm Danal. KPMG and even McKinsey all implicated around alleged irregularity involving uh, tenders, uh, bribery, all sorts of horrendous issues that have led in the case of SAP to the suspension or at least the, put the putting on administrative leave of their executive team here on the continent. Yeah, and uh, that's not not even excluding the likes of Bell Pottinger, um, who have also been you know implicated as uh, as being key people in essential pushing the agenda around the, the PR narrative trying to protect the Gupta Empire um, and I think they'll pay something like 10 million rand for a weekend's worth of work, something a lot you know, bizarre. So like clean up their Wikipedia profile um, to do, yeah, yo, it's, it's just gotten really bad and to, to put it in a nutshell, we, we, we are talking uh, broadly this issue of what's called or it's been coined as state capture the idea that um, powerful individuals like economic uh, powerhouses like the Gupta family are um, basically rolling into countries like South Africa and basically using their economic power and might to essentially influence government. Yeah, and so the bottom line of what happened with SAP, essentially um, SAP were applying for, for, for tender and to get business out of the government and it wasn't advancing as fast as they'd like. Um, they then approached the Guptas who went and got the same business um, using a company called, uh, I think it's called CAD, CAD, um, and CAD House essentially managed to get a 99.9 million rand uh, tender and they very much went back to SAP to outsource the work to. So the question is now, why would they appoint a CAD, um, a business called CAD House that had no experience in SAP systems or technology. They couldn't implement any of the stuff on the tender, but they were they ordered the tender and uh, as I said, they went straight back to SAP anyway to implement it. So And, po- and, and pocketed 10% of the of the sort of ticket price. Correct. And uh, and for that they, they considered it a facilitate or sales commission sorry, is what they call it um, for being able to essentially get the work out of government and funnel that straight back to SAP. So it's a, it's a challenge. There's a lot going on at the moment with, with, with what we call hashtag Gupta leaks and, and a result of emails that have been exposed to the to the public. Um, there's a bloodbath of uh, executives that are essentially falling on their swords or getting you know essentially removed from their positions as a result. The question is how far do these Gupta tentacles reach into South Africa's economy? Because at the moment they seem like they're absolutely everywhere. So yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. There's a word for this. 
Dang. <laughs> Dang. Hashtag stage capture. <laughs> Hashtag Gupta leaks. Well, again, did, did we say alleged enough? Because we don't want people coming after us. <laughs> no, we, we said alleged a lot. Allegedly, we said allegedly. But I'm alleging that we allege that we said allegedly. So this story is allegedly what's allegedly going on. Allegedly so. <laughs> okay, now if that doesn't cover us, I don't know. Okay, so yeah, that's that's just crazy. So that's what's trending in in South African news at the moment. Um, uh, moving on now to uh, South African news. Still, uh, Uber drivers in South Africa will now be considered employees in South Africa. That's according to a ruling by the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, and Arbitration, the CCMA, which is pretty much where disgruntled employers, employees, generally drag their employers to in order to get recourse when they feel they've been hard done by. Interesting stuff here. Very much so. And I, and I remember we've been chatting about kind of my love hate relationship with uh, with Uber, um, as my wife is actually. One of the one of the partners, so she's got a few Uber cars on on the road, and uh, from firsthand experience, it's so bizarre how they're kind of very. Um, very standoffish when it comes to these issues. So as an example, if your Uber driver was involved in an accident of some sort or if there was an issue that you may require Uber to intervene on, they've been extremely, extremely difficult. Um, they essentially t- have taken a hard line that they're not an employer and they do not get involved in any issues, even though they may have information, data, or their standpoint can fundamentally influence a case. Um, so they've had a very, very adverse, uh, uh, not adverse, a very uh, uh, hard line in terms of um, their employment status. So this ruling, I think, fundamentally changed Changes that, and uh, once again, uh, Uber being predicated on breaking the law, as as the Harvard Business Review article said, um, means that they came into South Africa with exactly the same mentality. And unfortunately, South Africa is one of those markets where um, you know doing things that, uh, especially from a CCMA, doing things that compromise your employees um, is not looked on uh, looked upon lightly. So I think they they've got their work that cut out from them. Um, I think this week they released uh, they released a statement that didn't say too much. It was just kind of acknowledging what had happened, but at the same time. Time, they haven't necessarily announced what they'll be doing you know, about the issue. Um, but if Uber is not to be an employer, there's questions around UIF, there's questions around unemployment insurance, there's, que- there's so many other questions relating to the implications of that for the millions, I won't say millions, hundreds of thousands of drivers that are driving Ubers at the moment in South Africa. Basically, as an employer, there are things that um, Uber would now have to answer to at a place like the CCMA where they've argued for the longest time they don't even belong to be because they're not an employer where, where that's changed now. And Quite interestingly, in the last few days, the, 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 the transport minister coming out saying that Uber drivers, uh, including the ones your, your wife hires, um, will now need to uh, apply for public transport licenses in line with legislation, which has not been the case before. And that impacts the, the entire model and, and, and really how streamlined and perhaps uh, uh, affordable it's been for Uber to roll out as quickly and grow as quickly as it has. I do think at the end of the day... As a user of the platform, I have a feeling I'm going to bankroll the whole thing. Yeah, but you understand there's also implications. So part of the ruling and or part of the statement that the transport minister made is that essentially by Uber vehicles in South Africa having to have transport licenses, they then have to have routes. So an Uber vehicle will only be able to drive and collect people on certain routes. Now, part of the value proposition for Uber is that you can essentially, as a driver or a partner driver, you can you can operate anywhere in that uh, in the jurisdiction. Now, this ruling essentially says you'll only be able to collect people between Santon and Alexandra, as an example. And if you're 
caught anywhere off your route, essentially you can you, you know you can be punished or you can have your license revoked. So I think the implications are far reaching. But you're quite right. I think as consumers, yes, we're going to bankroll it. But I wonder whether that fundamentally changes their business model. I mean, this uh, this notion that drivers could essentially manage their own time, make their own money, and do it anywhere was val- was valuable. It was a valuable uh, um, offering. Um, and now if they're going to be limited to routes, and in being limited to routes, there's going to be a bunch of other things that change regarding the employer-employee relationship. I wonder whether that'll still be as attractive for a driver or for someone looking to earn a little bit of money using the Uber platform. I really wish the alternatives were gearing up to make uh, public transport that much easier to use and that much more viable. We don't see the traditional taxi business um, trying to to make it easier to pay or um, to sort of... uh, make the, their, their routing system uh, more efficient. We don't really see like the existing sort of taxi business um, making an effort to even allow basics like card payment in their cars. It feels like everybody, including Uber drivers, have just have themselves in mind. And I think ironically, Uber drivers in getting their way on this particular issue will unwittingly make it much harder for themselves to make money off this this very and I don't think I think I don't know that if any everybody's thinking through the end game of the if of everyone pushing their own agenda. One, I don't think anyone particularly seems to have a heart for the the end user who who pretty much one pays either way, you know, from from the inconvenience, either from the inconvenience or from the additional cost of all this administration, you know, being needing to be bankrolled. And therein is the quagmire for Uber as they're solving such a big need, um, but the way they've gone about doing it is obviously tripping up their business model and their growth trajectory. So all of this against obviously a really, really unfortunate cultural and, 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 and corporate uh, background right now. I think they're struggling all around. So I did read, though, that despite all this, in the last quarter, they've they've grown, I think, something like ten percent. Despite that, well, which isn't surprising given the type of money that they spend in in acquiring new business or pretty much staying alive at this point. Uh, you do raise an interesting point. They are a business, it seems, that's too big to fail at this point. It'll be quite interesting to see what direction they take in order to to sort of satisfy everybody. Absolutely. And when at which point the wheels start falling off, you know. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a case and it's a business that we should watch more closely. But yeah, certainly a somber moment for them um, in, being, uh, in being taken to the court and the court actually finding that they are an employer after all. There you have it now. Easily one of the bigger... Uh, big money stories of the last week or so. Actus, a UK-based private equity firm, uh, investing $275 million to create Africa's largest university network. At least that's what they're calling it. They're calling it Honoris United Universities, and uh, they basically brought together private universities and colleges across 48 campuses in 30 cities on the continent. Um, they're no doubt riding Africa's craving for quality education and the sort of quality of life it, it tends to unlock. Um, they claim to already serve 27,000 students and expects the student population to grow to 100,000 over the next three to five years. And they have no plans to slow down on acquisitions. Absolutely. And they're focusing quite heavily on this notion of education for impact, which I think is great. Um, and we know that they're, uh, they're investing quite heavily in a number of different institutions as partners, um, from Tunisia right through to Southern Africa, Morocco, um, and, uh, and other locations that look like coming up. So I think for them, they've got a, they, you know, they, they've got a lot to do in terms of setting up and making sure that they establish themselves from a marketing and an awareness perspective. However, one can't dispute that they're solving a huge problem for our continent. So I think they're going to try and 
harness the collaborative intelligence and try and pioneer efforts um, with these different institutions that they're partnering with. Um, and in so doing, I think they're going to be creating quite an interesting generation of new leaders and professionals. So I'm watching quite closely because I think this education for impact is um, quite an interesting notion. And they're almost shifting away from academics but, you know, um, on their own to start understanding the other components of, of leadership. Um, and I think from a, from a university degree perspective, they're pushing the boundaries as far as what is it that's going to take or improve um, the prospects of future leaders that are, coming, are going to be coming out of their uh, out of their doors. So I think that's great. I think they're, they're doing a, a wonderful thing investing in education. I think that manifesto sounds quite similar to that of African Leadership University. And uh, I'd, I'd be quite curious to know what they make of this development. Honoris, uh, however, does seem to be more a play towards like the acquisition of traditional um, existing universities, privately held universities, um, whereas African Leadership University, while um, having physical campuses in Rwanda and Mauritius, does seem to have a much more sort of declared and heavier leaning on the e-learning side of things. Um, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, education education plays, to, you know, modern education plays, whether it's traditional, you know, sort of state-owned universities or private entities like this, no doubt have the, the e-learning trend, um, you know, plotted firmly in their strategic plans. Um, but it, it, would, it will be interesting to see what else they do outside of sort of acquiring existing institutions or adding them to their portfolio um, within e-learning, for example, to, to grow their network. Um, the challenge with education is that the disparity. Um, so there isn't really a gold standard. So if you're going to be partnering with universities in Tunisia, Morocco, South Africa, how is it that you can kind of create the gold standard? And maybe that's what the Honoris brand um, is intended to do is to kind of consolidate that and give it a give it a, a global um, a global stamp of approval but uh, um, once again I think uh, it waits to be seen 275 million um, that's a lot of money but um, yeah I think there's no doubt that they're, they're solving a very big problem that we need to address in, in Africa I've heard it argued that um, it, by, by ALU's founder that he, he, he finds like a lot of the thinking that goes into traditional uh, academic institutions is broken and he felt that ALU was addressing some of those some of that broken uh, I, I believe Honoris is no doubt thinking similarly. It will be interesting to see what emerges as the most important, as you said, the most important thing to either fix or get right in as far as African education is concerned and and also how, uh, how well poised Honoris, ALU or indeed anyone else is to basically deliver what Africa actually needs going into the future. And so here's a quick update that we won't dwell upon uh, coming up next regarding Etisalat Nigeria. Turns out there's no such thing as Etisalat Nigeria. Uh, according to reports, the company will be known from henceforth as Nine Mobile. Uh, this follows all of Etisalat Nigeria's UAE shareholders, including the state-owned investment fund Mubadala, exiting the company and leaving the board and management. Uh, the company's got a new CEO in the form of Boye Olusanya. He's a former Celtel executive. He's reportedly said that he and his team are committed to making sure that the business runs as profitably as possible uh, and that uh, that the business meets all its obligations. Now, the company is now overseen by a new board, which is led by Nigeria's central bank. And all of this went down after the Nigerian regulators intervened to save Etisalat Nigeria from total collapse 
after talks with its lenders to renegotiate that $1.2 billion uh, loan we've mentioned before on the show um, that they they accessed in 2013. When those talks fell apart with those 13 local lenders, the Nigerian Communications Commission and the Nigerian Central Bank decided actually let's make sure the, the 20 million subscribers who rely on Etisalat Nigeria or now nine, what's it called, nine mobile to deliver services doesn't fail. Yeah, good luck to them. I think a uh, uh, good update. They move very quickly to try and save the situation. So I'm looking forward to see the press release around Nine Mobile. But at the end of the day, 20 million subscribers, that's not a small base. Um, so hopefully the consumer still wins here. Indeed he do. Now to round things off today, some international news we'll just skip along past. Firstly, fr- the French president... Uh, What's his name? Emmanuel Macron talking utter garbage. Um, I addressed it in my recent op-ed for African Independent and Business Report. Um, yeah, at a press conference at the G20 summit in Hamburg, um, Macron answers a question from an Ivorian journalist when he was asked why there was no Marshall Plan for Africa and his his response includes stuff like the challenge in Africa is completely different. It's it's civilizational, whatever the heck that means. Um, failing states, complex democratic transitions. My my, I'm just my blood's boiling as I read. Um, and then he says one of the essential challenges that Africa has is that some of the countries today, in some of its countries today, seven or eight children are born to each woman. Ah. Dude, I mean, this guy, sometimes he comes across as so progressive and so, like, informed, and then he makes statements like this that are just like, I mean, you look at it and you think to yourself, is this, who's, who's writing this stuff for him? Or is he, is he actually just reading this and not seeing that he's actually speaking complete nonsense? Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, we don't have to spend time on it. I just think it's a very unfortunate choice of words, um, if that is the case, that, he, you know, he wasn't able to articulate what he was trying to say, but come on. Um, so I agree that Africa doesn't need like a ton of aid to, to come and save us and that kind of thing. Um, but the, the sort of reasoning as to why and so basically what I argue in my, in my article to, to close this off is that we need to start to own our own investment agenda and we need to start with the basics like Rebecca Nanchong, uh, Tommy Davies, uh, people like that, people we love on the show, friends of this show, they talk ad nauseum about the importance of having angel investment syndicates running on the continent. Our startup founders need to know that there's alternative sources of funding that, that they can access that doesn't get dictated to by people who might be quote-unquote fans of the continent but clearly don't get it or care or have interests that aren't necessarily vested with our own. <sighs> rant over. <laughs> no, not rant over. This is a this is a movement that we have to be very conscious of in our generation. So, and we keep coming back to it every show, and I think we have to keep coming back to it. But you're quite right. Um, it's something that we um, are going to have to be cognizant of because it's kind of one of those things that, if if left unchecked, it's a silent thing that you boil the frog when you put it in cold water. And if we don't stop and call it out every time we see it, um, you know who's going to do it? So it's not a rant. It's what we need to do, buddy. Yeah, and it wasn't startups he was talking about. Let me be fair. I mean, apples with apples, pears with pears. It's not, we're not trying to mix issues when they weren't. He wasn't specifically addressing our startup landscape or taken in general, anything like that. He was addressing macroeconomics and on some level foreign aid versus sort of foreign investment. I think he was trying to address a lot of complex things with this thing. But I think someone like Macron, who many people consider Africa friendly, quote unquote, Africa friendly, I think this was a really sad last opportunity for him to really show what the kind of attitude Africa needs from an external sort of potential foreign investment source ought to be. Absolutely. So case closed. Case closed. Now, uh, let's skip along. Uh, what do Mark Cantor, Justin Kaldbeck, Chris Saka, and even David McClure 
of uh, 500 startups who recently visited Africa on, on that inaugural Geeks on a Plane Africa tour. What do they all have in common, aside from having tons of money and being involved in venture capital? Uh, pick me, pick me, white males. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they have, that in, <laughs> they have that in common, too. So, yeah, we're talking about white males in Silicon Valley with a lot of money who don't do what's right often enough for us to know about it and to be upset about it and to definitely hope that whatever we're building here on the continent doesn't mirror what they've been up to. They are now officially on Silicon Valley's blacklist for how not to behave when you are a powerful white male with a lot of money and the power to make kings and queens out of the next generation of startup founders. Let's add Trav, Kalanick, and a bunch of people at, at Uber while we're at it to that list. Um, these are people to, to learn from in terms of what not to do and how not to behave. My hope in sort of citing them as this part of, in this part of the show is that whatever we learn from places like Silicon Valley, let's not adopt whatever it is these gentlemen are famous for. If you don't know any of them or don't know some of them, Google and find out and just write a few notes to self as to what not to do when you're in their position. Naughty, naughty, naughty boys. Then, of course, um, there's uh, SoundCloud that's in trouble. We're not going to go into this. We just want to give SoundCloud a big shout out. Uh, they've been a big part of enabling us as in terms of t- being a tool and a platform to grow uh, what we do here at the African Tech Roundup uh, as far as we have and to hear that they might be only a few months away or at least a quarter or two away from, from running out of runway and potentially being out of business. Oh, I'm just hoping someone like Spotify or Apple or Tidal or even someone outside of that sort of the obvious suspects in terms of their competitors, I hope that someone snaps them up and keeps them going. Because I think in as much as they have, they're having trouble making money and, uh, you know, settling on a, on a viable business model, I think they do such great work. And I really do hope for our sakes, at very least, that they don't go anywhere. Yeah, come on. Someone buy them, like Liquid Telecoms, Dangote Industries, Konena Brothers. Someone, can someone buy them and let's make it an African acquisition? Come on. That'd be crazy if SoundCloud went African. That'd be awesome. That would be amazing, man. That's what we're here to do. And let's drop those thoughts in the minds of those that have got the money. Let's buy it. It's probably a good buy right now, in fact. Yeah, it's probably going for next to nothing. Excuse. Eesh, that's a bit rough. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of good. Yeah, I didn't mean to excuse that pun. Anyway, so, yeah, I was going to, you know... There's the new Oculus headset that we, you know, we might talk about at some point. Uh, well, is that a game changer? The fact that it doesn't need a phone, the fact that it's, it's about 200, it's expected to retail at about $200. Is this going to push VR into the sort of mainstream? We don't know. All our listeners abroad, let us know if this is a thing where you at. Um, our biggest audiences, of course, are in the US and the UK outside of Africa. So let us know if this information or this this news about the new Oculus headset changes the game in terms of VR, uh, where you guys live. We'd like to keep uh, up to to speed with it. I don't imagine it's going to mean much for us here on the continent just yet. Let us know what you think in that regard. But that's it, Musa. That's it for this week. Is that us? Finish so soon. Wow, time flies when you're having fun. It's been good, as always. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always fun to have you here. But before we go, we'd like to dedicate this sponsor segment. Now, the first one went to us, but wouldn't be so greedy to like punt ourselves a second time. But anyway, um, this the second sponsor segment uh, will be used to promote a great new documentary called Niger Beta, which is spelled N-A-I-J-A. B-E-T-A, Niger as in Nigerian, Beta as in a player on Beta, the word Beta and Beta, 
which is really cool. I like that. Anyway, the documentary follows a team of Nigerian students from MIT who, who've launched and run a robotics camp for high school students in Lagos. Um, the documentary was actually shown at Cannes at the Pan-African International Film Festival last year. And since then, they've received a ton of awards as well as, you know, really great press uh, as they've sort of taken the film on the road uh, on here on the continent, in Europe, and even in North America. So here's the vibe to give you a sense. The Exposure Robotics League is a movement of students at MIT back to Nigeria to expose young people in Nigeria to be passionate about technology. The idea is to teach the kids for five weeks, and then at the end of five weeks, you test them by giving them a grand challenge to, to design a robot for and, of course, surmount ultimately. Sounds good, right? Now, it, it's definitely worth a watch. It's heartwarming. It, it definitely lets you into the streets of Lagos, which is what I loved. If you've never been to Lagos, this is a great way for you to sort of experience it um, through the lens of uh, an, an African who really cares about the place. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot to learn and just a lot to follow. It's just it's just a great documentary, certainly. Um, so we just thought we'd punt it. Uh, we like the guys who made it. We like their, their vision. And, and we love how um, they care about where Africa's going and how digital is going to help Africa get where we need to be. So you can rent or buy the, the doc documentary on Vimeo uh, for $4.99 to rent, $8.99 to buy. Um, all you need to do is just type Niger Better Vimeo into your browser. That's Niger Better Vimeo into your browser. You'll find it um, and you'll be you can easily sort of buy or rent it from there. Also, look out because over the next week or so, uh, we'll be sharing a conversation I had with the film's director, producer, Arthur Musa. Uh, so look out for that at africantechroundup.com. And that's definitely now properly the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. You guys um, make it so worthwhile to do what we do. We love our community and we love what Africa is turning into as we start to harness the real good that can be done uh, with tech here on the continent. Musa, say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Take it easy, Africa. <laughs> That's the most brief goodbye ever. <laughs> That's been great. Thank you very much, guys. Love hearing from you, so keep the comments coming, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, take it easy, Africa. <laughs>